0: sometimes we all uh, want to get as far away from running as possible. Right. And like, and, and, and I say that in a, in a lighthearted way, but I think that anyone who's been involved with running in any way knows what that means. I mean, like we love running to an obsession and, and that's great, but we also need a, a deep breath, a break, um, something else that, that isn't, you know, uh, not just running. I mean, I, I define myself as a lot of things and, and certainly running is a big part of that, but,
1: but that's not the only thing I am. That's Brian Metzler. And this is episode 75 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back or welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And this week, I sat down with my old friend, Brian Metzler. I've known Brian a long time, back in 2009, 2010, he and I co-wrote the On the Run column for Triathlete Magazine, and Brian was my boss at Competitor Magazine and Competitor.com from 2012 to 2016. Before Competitor, Brian worked as a senior editor at Running Times, he was also the founding editor of Trail Runner Magazine, and he's written for almost every running and outdoor publication imaginable at one point or another. He's authored or co-authored a few books in recent years, and he has a new one coming out this fall called Kixology, the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. I love this conversation, and I hope you will too. It was great to catch up with Brian where he lives in Boulder, Colorado, and talk about running, media, running shoes, along with where and how all those things intersect, and how he's made a career out of writing about the sport and the industry over the past 25 years. We talked about trends that have come and gone in both the media and with running shoes, two areas that Brian knows more than most people about. And we also got into his new book, which I was lucky enough to read an early draft of. And if you're a shoe geek like me, you'll definitely want to pre-order it and give it a read. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. Let's dive right in with Brian Metzler. Because you, because you know, for fall marathon, like people, people are going to be talking about the shoes as much as they are the athletes, and you know, who knows if that's a good thing or not. But it's, it's going to happen. Yep, yep. Um, but anyway, Brian Metzler, it's great to be with you in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you very much, Mario.
0: It's a huge honor, um, both to have you here in Boulder, but also to be on your podcast.
1: Well, it's a little odd for me. For those of you who don't know, Brian was my boss at Competitor Magazine from 2012 to 2000. 16. And now you're in the hot seat and I get to ask you a lot of questions. So let's see how this goes. I'm not sure I was ever your boss as much as a colleague in a, yeah.
0: in a, in a, in a contemporary, but uh, I appreciate that.
1: Start with where we're at Boulder, Colorado. How long has this been home for you?
0: Uh, in fact, um, we're looking at 25 years, which two things makes me obviously old or older. And then secondly, it also um, allows me to get perspective on what Boulder has been over that, that time, which is it's changed considerably, but it's, it's, you know, it's a fabulous place to live and a fabulous place to run. And certainly
1: means a lot to a lot of people. What brought you here in the mid-1990s?
0: Yeah, I was just out of school, and I was, um, I'd was i been a walk-on-track athlete and was trying to save some kind of fitness and had been running 5Ks around Chicago and was entirely burned, on that, burned out on that and was just looking for a new start somewhere. And my brother lived here, and I, I knew a lot about Boulder because of the running and everything else. And I just wound up out here, and uh, yeah, I, I found it to be an amazing place, strangely enough. When I got out here, again, I was burned out and running. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to ski and maybe I'll pick up mountain biking. And that lasted for about three months. And I realized I was really not that fit. And I started trail running. And then life changed after that. Had you been out here to visit
1: prior to that? Or was it, I'm. Um- Moving there and we'll see how this goes yeah I've
0: been out here to visit a couple times and um, in fact one of the times I was visiting my brother and I came out on a spring break um, before he moved out here and I, I had uh, kind of just run past the track and I'd seen guys I'd seen Deke out here I'd seen Arturo and, and I was like wow this is the place you know and and somewhere back then there was a Sports Illustrated cover with all these great um, uh, international runners that were training in Boulder and so I knew that there was a big buzz about that and I, I wasn't you know anywhere close to that kind of thing I was just wanted to be inspired by running and I I really loved running, even though my competitive career, whatever it was, was, was long behind me. And I was excited to keep running and find new inspiration. And so... Uh, that was part of it, certainly, and it's, again, a beautiful place, and then trail running kind of surprised me because it wasn't really a thing back then, and I kind of fell into it, and I'm like, wow, I really love this. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm running trails every day, and I loved it, so it kind of took off from there.
1: Yeah, as you just alluded to, Boulder has long been a mecca for running Arturo Barrios. Frank Shorter was here. Rob De The list goes on, and it continues to be. I mean, you've got groups who come in and out of here. Um, to train. You've got individuals who've been based here for a long time, but the town itself has also evolved. I mean, just in the last five or so years, you have big businesses coming in here. Google has set up shop, um, other big tech companies, more and more people are moving here. How has Boulder evolved over the past 25 years since you first landed here
0: yeah two things with that i think that um first of all i moved here uh about the month that that mark just won the world championship and and kind of you know it was was an exciting thing um and then as far as boulders at town i think that uh you know it it was still had uh, remnants of its old hippie past here When I moved here, there was the Pearl Street Mall was here, but there was mom and pop stores on Pearl Street Mall, not not the bigger changed or or mass produced kind of fancy microbreweries. It was was kind of a different place. It was still a small town. And I think that it's it's changed considerably that way. It's much more crowded. It takes longer to get across town Um, from a running point of view. Like I said, with Mark winning the world championship, there was kind of a, a string of elites that lived here from Deke and Steve Jones and those guys from the 80s and the 90s that were still around here. And that was pretty cool. And then there was kind of a, a drop-off for a while, and there weren't as many elites training here. Uh, certainly Eugene, Flagstaff, other places became cool places. Um, there was a lot of Africans here living um, temporarily in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then, and then all of a sudden it kind of turned around again. And now, you know, certainly you have um, a bu- bunch of current elites here now, Emma Coburn and her group, um, Ten Men Elite. I mean, Jenny Simpson's been here for a while. Obviously, she went to see you, but certainly um, – The the beauty of all that is uh, the the, the fabric of Boulder is is woven together from Frank Shorter um, through those other elites of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and and it's still present today. So that same vibe and inspiration, I think, is still here, despite the town changing from a small kind of... Um, mountain town to a more cosmopolitan kind of pretty flashy place. Yeah, with Google here, um, Twitter's got an office here, Apple's opening a new media center here. So there's a lot changing. Uh, It's a lot more produced and shiny and polished, but at the the core, it's still a great place to run. Do you worry at all that it's going to lose that over time? You know, I I think it already has lost some of that, and I don't say that in a negative way. It's still, again, a great place to live and to run, train, and and the quality of life here is still amazing. Um, Certainly it won't be, you know, what it was back then. And I don't really know that I really was into what what it was back then. Certainly, it's just evolving around us. And I think the beauty is that um, as as a runner, um, as someone who likes to be active, I mean, the trail systems, uh, the beautiful scenery, the mountains, um, and also the support systems of of running stores and physical therapists and just the general um, fandom of people here um, are still present. I know Jenny Simpson told me recently that you know, she was uh, in a grocery store aisle and someone said, hey, great race in your, your recent Diamond League race. Right. And I'm not sure how many places in America that happens, but certainly um, there is that connection in the running community is strong, even if bigger and different
1: people are paying attention.
0: So, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's, it's fun for me as, as, a, as, a, as a running fan nerd or someone who's close to the sport to. To see you know Emma running around, or to see you know some of these people training, um, you know in in the in the places people have always trained, and that's that's the thing too. People go to the same places to train, either the tracks or the three k loop or the reservoir, um, some of the trails, um, and so you can always see that um, and experience that. And um, and there's such a rich depth of trail running and ultra running here. You can go out on trails any day and see somebody who's like, oh, that guy was running last year at Hard Rock, or that guy, you know, and like, there's, there's always that kind of thing going on. So there's There's always that inspiration. Do you remember the
1: first trail run that you went on when you moved to Boulder?
0: Yeah, one of the very first was I had lived down the street from uh, Chautauqua and I just was kind of running on the roads kind of aimlessly and all of a sudden I popped up to this park and I'm like, oh, cool. I'm like, I'd, I'd seen some hikers and so I kept running on this trail and I didn't know what I was doing. Trail running wasn't a thing. You know, in high school and college, I had run on trails, but I didn't, it wasn't a thing. There weren't special shoes. It just happened to be, I left the sidewalk in the road and was on a trail. And so here I, I ran out on Mesa trail I don't know, like, um, four miles out and back. So an eight mile run. I was like, I came back and I you know, jogged the last like mile down to my apartment and I was like, wow, that was super cool. And I'm like, I'm going to do that every week. And like, then I went back the next day and did it again. And like, you know, probably five times that week, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. So, um, yeah, right away, something like clicked and I, I didn't know what it was probably for years, you know, but it
1: was something that was there. It was very inherent. What were you doing professionally at the time when you moved here to Boulder?
0: Yeah. So I came out here, um, uh, much, to my parents' dismay, with no job, um, I had a journalism background. I'd worked for newspapers in Chicago and, um, you know, I was trying to find out what I really wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And, um, you know, back then, certainly, there was a different world of media and content. Um, you know, you were either newspapers, radio, or TV. And, you know, um, I had a face for radio, but I didn't have the voice for it, maybe. But I, I wanted to be in newspapers. I just wanted to be in, in, in newspaper. I love the thrill of, like, you know writing an article and then the next day seeing it in print and you know not from an ego point of view but just it, it was a fun thrill of people reading what you wrote right well that obviously changed you know very quickly after that with uh cable tv and also that of stuff and in and now obviously uh, your google feed you get all the news you want you know immediately and um that being said i moved out here and was uh into newspapers um i eventually got a job with the daily camera one of the first stories i wrote um was about this uh woman from tanzania who was here training and and i just i really felt part you know um of of the running community because people from the boulder road runners reached out and said, Oh, great article, great piece. And, and I'm like, Oh, this is great. And so that's kind of when I was first here, I covered a lot of different sports um, wrote about a lot of different things, but certainly that was kind of the first kind of um, aspect of me being in Boulder professionally. How old were you at the time? I think I was um, 24, 25, so, yeah, just a few years out of school. Yeah, and it was funny because I was uh, I was still, you know, um, I, I thought I knew a lot about running and everything else, and I did, but then I was, I was still pretty green as a newspaper writer or a writer and everything else, and um, one of the key turning points was um, Adam Goucher was a sophomore, and the, my sports editor at the time assigned me to say, like, hey, track down Goucher and do this big takeout story um, about him and everything else. And so I remember uh, I met Adam over in the field house, Balsh Field House, and he had already had a great freshman year, um, in cross country. I think he was second in NC's that year. And then this is, uh, maybe 95. He was, he was gearing up to win it. And, um, so I had a great time, you know, interviewing him, talking to him. I reached out to other people, um, to, you know, to, to, to compliment the story, you know, Mark Coogan, I think, Amby Burfoot, I think, I don't know, I'm not sure who else, but a bit, but better, the story and, and a lot of people came out and said, wow, it's a great piece and everything else. And they really kind of understood who this guy was relative to, um, how great he might be. And, um, And then I think he was, uh, I think he was fourth that year at NCs. And then obviously eventually he won a couple of NCAA titles. Um, You know, we know the whole story of running with the Buffaloes, but that was kind of cool because I wrote this great story about him, what I thought was a great story um,
1: before he became really who he was. From a running standpoint, you mentioned how it wasn't until you moved here that you got into trail running, but how else did your perspective on the sport change after moving to Boulder?
0: I think it was um, it was exciting and interesting, uh, certainly to be a part of this community and and see how well the recreational side of Boulder as a running town meshed with then the elites, you know. And um, you know, certainly that came from like celebrating Mark Platts's win um, to to going to the community track meets that are held here um, in the summertime and seeing you know elites show up, not necessarily running but just showing up. Um, certainly, you know, I'd see Frank from that, from time to time and um, just being inspired that this community was. It was pretty connected. I mean, like someone like Rich Castro, who started the Boulder Road Runners back long before I got here, um, was was a vital part of that. And and there was an appreciation um, of who's around and like supporting the runners that needed travel money or something like that, or, or home when they came in town was really cool. And I think the Boulder Boulders have been a big part of that too. The Boulder Boulders long. Um, and especially now, been a race that really supported uh, pro athletes by having, you know, prize money and separate races for for pros. Um, long after that went away as a trend on, on the national scene, and um, you know, Frank being part of that, being part of the Boulder Boulder and the Bosley family, they, they they embraced then and still embrace now probably that same culture that was around running in 1979 when when pro athletes, elite athletes, the Frank Shorters, the Bill Rogers, the Rick Rojas. Um, the John Clare's were an important part of what running was to everybody. Now we, we've seen that change where elites um, or the importance of elites is distant from a lot of what recreational runners know as running. And that's understandable given how the trends have changed. But I think that um, the connection is still here in Boulder. It's still here with the Boulder Boulder. And, and like I said, the whole idea that like there's people around here that are training for
1: international races is to me is super inspiring. To put a pin in things right there and shift directions back to your beginnings as a runner. You just mentioned how you grew up outside of Chicago. What was your first, or what is your first remembrance of running, having a presence in your life?
0: Yeah. When I was really little, I remember my brother and I would always be running around the parks and stuff like that. And I was always like, you know, it was my goal to chase him and track him down. And I don't think I've ever, successfully done that and I don't think I've ever beaten him in a race but he was always an inspiration because he was fast and when he got into school and school programs for track I was always admiring that relative to like wow I want to do that I want to run that event I want to do that I want to get those spikes and so so as a young kid I always had this fascination with running and running fast my dad had run track when he was in high school and um, there was a lot of connections there and, and a family side just our neighborhood was Back then, people were running around all over the place, and it was fun to be fast. And you know, I I knew that I couldn't catch my brother, but I could catch other kids, and that was exciting. And there was this thrill, this wind in your face kind of thrill of running that always like was part of my um, psyche. And I I loved a lot of sports. I played a lot of sports, but running was always kind of part of those. And and certainly, I was an okay baseball player, but I was a a good runner, so I could run fast and and maybe a good outfielder and a good base runner, things like that. And um, and then eventually, when I got into grade school of programs, I was like, wow, this is cool. And like, you know, I just, I just, I just found this kind of affinity to running and to moving like that um, from an early age.
1: One thing we're going to talk about later on in this conversation is this new book you have coming out, Kixology. It's about the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. And in the first chapter of the book, you talk about your first remembrances of, and you got a smile on your face now as you're thinking about it, of, you know, putting a pair of running shoes on your feet. I'd love for you to retell that for my
0: listeners. Yeah. I'm not sure they were actually running shoes except they were, they were sneakers decidedly sneakers. Right. Which um, is a generic name, but they were certainly different than like the, you know, all these little boy dress shoes I had or whatever, you know, and like, I remember my brother had a pair of of really cool sneakers the year before or whatever. And I was like, Oh, I want those, you know, and like, uh, next year when we get shoes, you'll get those. And you know, my parents said, and like we went to this store in town called the shoe tree. And like, I remember going there and I remember like, I vividly remember like sitting down the, the direction I was facing. And he brought up a Brannock device, this big, you know, the big metal device. I didn't know what it was the kid. And they, they, they size you up and everything else. He goes back and he pulls out literally, this red and white, maybe blue box of shoes. And I remember like, I was like so excited. It was like this, this crazy thing. And this guy, I remember he sized me up and everything else and laced them up. And I was like, whoa, I was, I was beyond words. I was, I was like, I mean, I can still feel it now. And I remember leaving, I was so excited. And, and there's not many other things in life that I remember that vividly, but that moment I do. And, and um, that was my first connection with, again, athletic shoes, sneakers, running shoes. And um, it stuck with me um, for a long
1: time. I remember one thing you always used to tell me when we were at competitors that happiness is a new pair of running shoes.
0: Absolutely, and that's that's kind of um, that's kind of been with me as well. I mean, there's many instances in the book, but also through my life where I've I've been in places where you know um, you know running to me is is kind of that that soul surfing, that soul energizing thing that has always been there for me, and um, and certainly new running shoes often inspires that. And so um, when I was young, as a kid, as a gr- grade school, middle school runner or in high school, um, in college later in life, a new pair of running shoes meant the signaling of this new, new dedication, this new approach, this new goal, this whatever it is, a new, um, way to train, whatever. And, and it's not that like you need new running shoes. You don't, I mean like, again, running is a simple sport and, you know, lace a pair of shoes and go for a run. That's, that's the essence of what it is. But certainly, um, having that new pair means that hopefully you put a lot of miles on the old pair and you warm out or, you know, they're gone. And, and, and yet this, this, this kind of uh lacing up a new pair of running shoes was always like this, this way to kind of reinvigorate yourself in all aspects. I mean, no matter if you were, um, you know, upset about something, or a breakup of a girlfriend or like just, you weren't very fit or, or looking for a new job, running would always be that like daily charge, this daily affirmation of excitement.
1: When for you, did you realize that running wasn't just something you were interested in at the time and were doing because you enjoyed the competitive aspect of it, or maybe you ran for the school team and that it was going to be something that was going to be a part of your life for as long as you're going to live.
0: That's a good question. I mean, I I think at some point, um, you know, turned over for me, I I was uh, a pretty good runner in high school. Um, and then I was a pretty average, you know, mediocre walk on runner in college. And I realized quickly that like, okay, I'm not, I'm not, Cut out to run that much faster, and but I still loved it. And I was there was a sadness when I when I couldn't run anymore, like like that, or wasn't able to compete the way I wanted to compete. And so somewhere in there, certainly that was the first inkling of it. And then like after college, I was still inspired to run, even though um, all of my high school teammates and most of my college teammates had stopped training. And like they're like, "Oh, why are you running?" I'm like, "God, I love to run, right? It's the one thing that I, I'd love to do, and like I would I would want to get out there." And I wasn't trying to kind of recreate past glories or I just, I love that feeling that, that, that endorphin rush. And like that, again, I've never been on a run, a single run where I have finished and gone, Oh, I wish I hadn't run or, you know, and a lot of people say that, but I mean, that's my, my thing. I mean, like I just, you know, certainly when you're hurt or injured or can't run, you feel this, this void. But, but so when I continued running after college, um, you know, five K's and such, uh, I, you know, that's, that was kind of the thing. And, and, and at the same point, when I said earlier, when I I was burned out, like, yeah, I was like, I was trying to do too much and trying to be too much and I needed to change. And, and certainly trail running came to me at the right time um, because I was running, you know, modest times for 5Ks and probably running myself under the ground. I was, you know, 20 uh, something, early 20 something and probably out drinking too many beers, whatever else. And uh, none of my friends were running and I was maybe forcing it, but but I still knew that running was going to be there for me. And, and running has come back to me and and, and, or always been there for me in different ways. Um, every time I've, I've gone and looked for it or, or, you know, made it a part of my life.
1: Was trail running the first time that you realized running was more than just a competitive pursuit? I think so.
0: I think that, um, certainly, uh, through my early twenties, um, I was still judging myself based on, you know, what I was or what I could have been when I was, you know, 14 to 22, you know, and I, I think, you know, all of a sudden here you are starting life and trying to pay for your own bills and insurance and all that stuff. And, I realized that, like, yeah, that running was still there, but what was it going to be? You know, I, I wasn't going to be um, any kind of sub elite, you know, runner at all. I, I just wanted to do it, you know. And I, even comparing myself to people on Boulder, there was fast people on Boulder then, and I'm like, well, that's not me. But I love to do this, you know. And I think that trail running became this um, this new opening, this, this salvation, and like it didn't didn't matter how fast you're running and how hard you're running, even though I, I ran fast and hard at times. Um, it was like this this um, both internal and external exploration. Right. And like to find a new trail, to go a new place, to go longer. I mean, my first longest runs, you know, I was a middle distance runner, so I never ran that far. My first longest runs, you know, over 20 miles, whatever else were on trails. And like, it was just an amazing experience. And like, again, it was, it was just, there were so many touch points that, um, that kind of evolved from these runs, you know, that, that spurred, you know, career creativity, just new ideas. And,
1: um, yeah, it was that was that was an amazing experience. Let's put a pin right there. Most people listening to this know you as a writer and editor. As I mentioned earlier, you were the editor in chief at Competitor Magazine. While I was there as senior editor before that, you worked at Running Times. You've written for Runner's World. You were a founding editor of Trail Runner Magazine. Uh, you've got a new book coming out. You've worked on other books. So people have seen your byline in various publications. When did Writing come into your life, or when did you realize that writing was something that you were interested in? It's
0: funny. I I um I think that the, the biggest turning point was <clears throat> I was on a, a family vacation to Colorado, um, a ski trip, um, when I was about a sophomore in college, and I was in the school of business, um, and you know taking accounting and finance uh, classes and everything else, and I was really kind of bored to tears with it, and I was like, ah, I'm going to drop out of school and become a ski lift operator, you know, like just take a take a, take a winter job or whatever else, and. My mom was like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. If you drop out of school, it could go sadly wrong. And who knows where you will to you'll get back and everything else. And she's like, she's like, look, you've always loved to write and you've, you've always been very good at it. And and why don't you pursue that? You know, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, I have, have I, have I, you know, am I a good writer? And she's like, oh, yeah, you're a great writer. And so you never realized prior to that. No, not really. I mean, I, I'd i done well in like um, English composition classes and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, whatever I, I did have, a, it was easy for me even in college in that first year and a half to write a five-page paper like that, no big deal. It was you know, The words always flowed um, you know, when I wrote by hand or by typewriter or whatever. And so it was easy. And so with that inspiration, um, I stayed in school, I switched to journalism um, and then it kind of took off from there. I, just, I really you know, found an affinity for reporting on sports and writing about sports. I thought I had a pretty good knowledge of um, the sports I was writing about and then also, uh, again, how to construct a sentence and such. And so that was one of the the turning points in my life for that. And I've never looked back. And since then, you know, my kind of career has gone through a lot of different types of media, but as media has changed, but certainly, um, storytelling, you know, writing about things I love to do, um, has been fortunately, you know, part of my entire career. The fundamentals are still the same. I think so. Yeah. And I think that, um, I'm sure I could be writing for, you know a business magazine or something some other place you know but but i've i've kind of fallen into writing about running because i was in boulder um, based on that very first story i wrote back in 1994 um but then found more opportunities because i had ideas related to running and a lot of things in boulder um certainly uh were original ideas trail running and some of the people here some of the athletes here some of the shoe brands that started here uh certainly there was a lot uh, of subject matter for me to write about while being here
1: Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's the Kaiser Permanente Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon, which takes place on March 1st, 2020. If you're looking for your next or even your first Boston qualifier, look no further than the Kaiser Permanente Napa Valley Marathon. This race is a fast net downhill official qualifier, and it's just perfect for anyone who wants to earn their BQ. The Kaiser Permanente Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon are also ideal for the first-time marathoner or half-marathoner. I ran the inaugural Half Marathon there earlier this year, and it was awesome. I mean, you're running through the heart of wine country. It's absolutely beautiful, plus the crowds are manageable. You're running down the Silverado Trail through the heart of Napa Valley, so either distance would make for a memorable first race or just a great race experience in general. You won't want to miss out on these sweet race perks. You get free wine and beer tasting. You can have your bib mailed to you if you're coming from out of town or even if you're local take take advantage of it it's part of your registration fee uh it's only a 1 hour drive from San Francisco and Oakland airports and you'll receive a race bag which has a long sleeve tech shirt and a finisher medal so mark your calendars race day is March 1st 2020 you can register today at napavalleymarathon.org and use the code shakeout10 that's shakeout and the number 10 to save 10 bucks on your registration before September 9th 2019 so run, sip, and savor at the 2020 Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon. All right, let's get back to the show. Where did it go from that story that you did for the Daily Camera on Adam Goucher?
0: Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think that I, I got, you know, certainly just uh, more confidence about that in, in writing about um, uh, running, uh, knowing that, that I was still passionate about running, but I still knew a lot about it. I still cared a lot about it. And so... Um, getting to know people like Mark Wetmore uh, up at CU and, and sitting down talking talking to him. And, and, you know, he always encouraged me to write, you know, stories and everything else. And then, you know, meeting people around town and interviewing them and realizing how many profound people were here on a national basis. You know, I was able to write stories um, for Running Times, Runner's World, other newspapers. I would, because I had connections to Chicago, I would write a lot of Chicago-based stories um, from athletes that were here that, you know, had connections there. And so, it just kind of took off from there. And I just, um, I just found, you know, more passion, more inspiration, uh, kind of the more it went
1: along. Have you ever thought of yourself as a running writer or just a writer who happens to write mostly about running?
0: That's a really good question. And, uh, I, have I have written about a lot more than just running. Um, I've written about a ton of, you know, different sports, outdoor sports. Um, I've written a lot of business stories. I've written a lot of, um, news stories. And, uh, so I, I guess, at heart, I consider myself a writer. Um, because if, if I was assigned a story or if I pitched a story about something that had nothing to do with running, I think I could do a really good job at it. I think, um, certainly I understand, um, you know, how to report a story, how to, how to, um, how to interview, um, how to, how to talk to people and and get stories out of people. Um, but I think because I've been so involved in running, um, I I think certainly that I am a running writer, right? And it's. That's that's a great thing, but but I also have a a lot of other ideas and and things I've done that are not related to running. But that's a really good question.
1: You don't want to feel pigeonholed.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, sometimes we all want to get as far away from running as possible, right? And like, and 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 I say that in a in a lighthearted way, but I think that anyone who's been involved with running in any way knows what that means. I mean, like, we love running to an obsession, and and that's great, but we also need a a deep breath, a break, um, something else that that is you know. Uh, not just running. I mean, I I define myself as a lot of things and and certainly running is a big part of that, but, but that's not the only thing I am.
1: What was the first article that you ever remember writing about running shoes?
0: Um, I think, um, I mean, I I helped the daily camera start its, uh, outdoor recreation page in 1995. but I think I did kind of include some running shoes or how to buy running shoes and and some of the usual stuff around town. There's a guy named, paul Estorino, actually who um gosh i don't know which which brand he's at now he was at the north face for a while he was at burton he was a lot of other brands um but he was the manager of the runners roost downtown i remember interviewing him for a story and then um later he uh you know he we kept in contact with you know events that were having and everything else but i remember writing a piece like a maybe a review of of trail running shoes um you know based on the interview with him and that was maybe the first story about shoes like that and then i also was um I was actually working at a magazine in town, a skiing magazine, actually, and they were doing their summer issue. And the editor said, oh, you're a big trail runner. Can you um, review trail running shoes for us for our summer issue, which, you know, was kind of their off-season June through August mountain recreation issue, essentially. And I'm like, oh, for sure, you know. And, like, I was super psyched about it. And, you know, it's the first time I ever really kind of got directly contacted with um, connected with the, the shoe brands, you know. So I remember at the time it was North Face, Adidas, uh, Nike, Um, maybe Brooks, I don't know, but like, and it got like all these samples of shoes to test out and review them and everything else. And I was like, yeah, this is cool. And I, I, you know, I certainly knew, some of the nuances of shoes, but once all, all of a sudden these samples were coming in, I was like, wow, there's, there's, of these eight different shoes, they all run differently. You know, and they're all entirely different. And some of them were actually really good. I liked them a lot for how I ran and what I ran. And some of them were total dogs, you know, and I was like, whoa, like this is, you know, what's, what's going on here. But so that was the first piece uh, nationally. I think I wrote for about running shoes. And that was about 1999 or 2000.
1: And that just furthered your curiosity to learn as much as you could and share that information with people who read your stuff?
0: Um, I think that was part of it, but I think it was less about that and more about, like I said, real curiosity about shoes and, and, and amazed that there were so many different types of shoes. I mean, at the time, uh, road running shoes were very similar, you know, cushioning, you know, everyone had their proprietary cushioning and certainly there was there was trainers, there was racing flats and yeah, there was stability and motion control, but that was kind of lost on me as as opposed to kind of how trail running shoes were developed. There was you know, some thin, light, and fast ones. There were some more um, beefy, you know, cushioned ones, w- ones that offered great protection. Um, and because I was getting more and more into trail running, I was, I was really keen on that. And so I think um, kind of that led me to going to trade shows, to, to uh, interacting with brands and seeing what next year's shoes would be, which was super cool to me, um, talking to designers, developers, marketers, things like that, and really understanding the running shoe trade as a business, um, as well as kind of how shoes were evolving.
1: How have shoes evolved?
0: Yeah, crazy, right? I mean, like um, again, you still need a pair of shoes and you just go out for a run, so it doesn't really matter what's on your feet. But certainly, I think that um, you know, over time, you can say that that running shoes have probably improved um, based on kind of how they're made and how they're um, the materials used, things like that. Although you could argue too that um, you know, when when Derek Clayton ran sub two hundred nine, I mean, he was wearing next to nothing of a shoe, and that's still you know a time that would be you know pretty pretty fast nowadays. But uh, from from the point of view that I think like I think when I was getting into it in the 1990s, uh, in early 2000s, there was a lot of shoes that were like overbuilt and heavy and hyped, you know, and like like Nike shocks, like I don't understand why people ever ran on those things, it, but Nike obviously was behind it. They were pushing them and everything else it was a big deal. Um, at the same time, I found at that time shoes weren't really performance oriented. Uh, most of them, not not all of them, but there were shoes that were just again, for the, for the mainstream, um, recreational runners, they wanted cushion, they wanted comfort and they wanted step in comfort. And so when, when brands were putting in these like really cushy, um, you know, footbeds, it was just so when you put them on, on, on the floor, shoe floor, you, you, you basically love the shoe and want to buy it. And that didn't really equate to all that, you know, foam and, and chunkiness didn't equate to performance or better running. It equated to a lot of other things, comfort, but like it wasn't that. So that, that was intriguing to me and and kind of uh, made me curious, but, um, but overall, I think that you know, now we've seen shoes, especially after the minimalist boom, which we can talk about in a second, I guess, but um, shoes are lighter. Shoes seem to be more performance-oriented, at least for the sake of moving with the foot the way it's supposed to, not controlling the foot. Um, those are some of the biggest things, I think, that have changed, especially in the last five to seven years that have been important for, for everybody.
1: Are there trends or fads that have come through, passed, and then come back around again? I think so. I mean,
0: I think that, you know, it's kind of how you look at it. And, um, you know, we we as a, a human culture tend to look at recent things as as kind of, oh, that's a trend, right? And not realizing the history of things sometimes. And, you know, if you look at, and I was part of this too, if you look at like when when Hoka came around and they had these super cushioned shoes and, you know, we started calling them maximalist cushioned shoes, they certainly were, but that wasn't the first iteration of that by any means. I mean, there was, you know, shoes. I mean, if you look at the first Air and sole shoe of the 1970s, 1979, the Air Tailwind, that was probably the first, you know, next generation um, cushion shoe. But 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 also, if you look at the Air Max, that was really the first maximalist shoe. I mean, like, um, and Nike was just taking it as their own. They weren't trying to create a trend for the industry. They were just doing their own thing, right? And whereas, um, and then maybe Hoka wasn't either. But certainly that took off as, as another trend. But so so that's one of the things I think. Certainly minimalism. Um, you know, certainly traced its roots back to the original running shoes of the nineteen sixties and early seventies, you know, like the Tiger Jayhawk um was was a next to nothing, you know, shoe, the uh, tiger marathon. I mean, there's not nothing in those shoes at all. And then we have, you know, in the mid 2000s whether you want to call it um, you know, five fingers or new balance minimus, all these shoes that had next to nothing underneath them. And certainly there was reasons for that. Um, but but yeah, are there recurring things? Yeah. I mean, there was, it was for a long time, you know, those hippie shoes, earth shoes that were a big thing. Like, you know, it's the idea of feeling uh, proprioceptively connected to the ground, right. And how your foot moves. And there, there's great um, kind of reason for that. I mean, like it it is always better to feel the ground, but you know, does it mean that everyone should be running those? No.
1: Do you think that there is confusion in the, in the industry because brands are building shoes or, brands started building shoes for performance runners. I mean, running wasn't a recreational pursuit decades ago. It was just people who were training and racing, mostly marathons, versus today where running is an industry, it's a participatory-based sport. And, you know, we've seen um, product evolve to literally fit those people and their becomes this clash of what's performance oriented versus what is for the masses or can the same shoes work for both?
0: That's a really good question. If you look back to, you know um, you know, the, the, the the track spikes being built in late 1890s um, to allow runners to run faster on cinder tracks. I mean um, that was performance, you know, at at the forefront. Right. And, And since that time now, yeah, you have shoes that you have, you know, 600 shoes available right now that are a wide range of, of performance-oriented from racing flats and spikes now to shoes that um, feel good, are comfortable, might look good. I think the challenge is that um, as running has grown, and it's grown considerably um, from the 1970s to now, um, you, you have Definitely a divergent, at least two and maybe multiple kind of interests from shoe companies. Um, and, and certainly, yeah, we want runners to run faster and, and more efficiently. And certainly the Nike 4% and everything that's followed from that is a good example of that. But also, again, getting back to the, the whole recreational runner, um, you know, which you might call a jogger, right? Which some, for some reason in the 70s, people were called joggers um, that didn't run. And, and now it's everyone wants to be a runner. But the recreational runner slash jogger is not necessarily doing the same thing um, as, as elite runners training for a marathon or something. Right. Um, and so those people generally want comfort and cushioning and, um, you know, they might want to just go run four miles around the neighborhood with their friends or whatever, and that's what they want. And so from that point of view, um, the spectrum of shoes is so vast and so divergent. Um, it's just, it's it's hard to say, but, uh, but, but generally there are
1: multiple different, um, uh, reasons that, that brands are putting out shoes. When you're reviewing a shoe, which you've reviewed thousands of shoes, what are you looking for when you're putting them on your feet? That's a good question because you know, even me as a as a you know uh,
0: a reviewer of one. I mean, like I know that that this how a shoe fits for me, how it performs, how it feels is related to me only. Um, my foot, my my gait, my fitness at that current time. Um, so, so that's, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, like I've done reviews with, you know, as many as 20 testers reviewing shoes and, and I've done reviews based on my own kind of experience in them. And so I think, um, the first thing is, is how well that shoe allows me to run without, you know, any questions or any, even knowing it's there. I think that's the best sign of a, of a good shoe is like, you can run with it. However you're going to run, whether it's on trails or whether it's a 20 mile on the roads or whether it's a tempo workout or speed workout, and and not worry about it inhibiting your stride at all. I think that's um, that's one of the bi- the biggest things. Second thing is like you know what is it doing differently? Um, is the cushioning uh, you know new and soft? Is it is it soft and resilient? Um, you know uh, you know is, is the is the enclosure um, with the laces uh, more comprehensive than previous versions? I mean there's a lot of things to look for, but certainly ultimately it's like
1: how well does that shoe allow you to run without question? Would you encourage consumers to ask a lot of those same questions when they walk into a running store or they're contemplating buying their next pair of running shoes?
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that, that most runners um, probably don't have any idea um, about kind of how a shoe could or should fit them well. And that, that goes for, you know, most recreational runners and even a good chunk of competitive runners um you know often competitive runners come up with um you know certain brand or certain style and they stick with for a long time and and maybe they're not that aware relative to um kind of what they need or you know how how a shoe can fit them but for everybody i think i think fit is the most important and fit comes down to certainly more than length it's it's the shape and the volume of your foot and you know by having a, a shoe match the shape and volume of your foot, among other things, um, and by other things, I mean like the idiosyncrasies of your gait and how your, how your feet move and how, that, how they're different, how your left and right feet are different. Um, all those things are important to get a shoe that ultimately allows you to run as efficiently as, as possible. And so again, it's it, it's 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 how your foot, how your feet can move naturally um, the way they're supposed to. Um, yes, the way you would if you're barefoot. But let's not kid ourselves. We're not talking about barefoot running. We're talking about just efficient running with some sort of um, protection, some sort of comfort, some sort of cushion that um, can allow you to run. You know, if you're running on the roads or on the trails, um, to mitigate that impact with the ground. And so. Um, I think a lot of people probably don't, don't understand all those nuances. And so certainly there's ways to, um, either visit a good specialty running retailer store or being able to try on a bunch of, you know, um, shoes, uh, would help a lot. And certainly the, the ultimate level would be getting a really good gait analysis that has, um, you know, some digital impact to it, you know, meaning, meaning a, a force plate treadmill and understanding really how your left and right feet are different, how you hit the ground differently and how at that present point in time, your, your gait is operating.
1: Building off of that, a lot of stock gets put into running shoe reviews. We did them at Competitor. A lot of other magazines do them. We see YouTubers doing them. You know, online you can find reviews of products in a number of different places now. How much stock would you put into them these days? Absolutely zero. Um, I
0: think, and you know, I have a lot of people in the industry that we know—writers and, and, and shoe people and everything else. I don't think running shoe reviews are worth anything um except for the, the the announcement of the news of hey this shoe does this or it's built with this or whatever else. But I think the reviews themselves, I mean I, I love watching a lot of people on on YouTube and and whatever else, but like it's like it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect um how it affects you as a runner and how it fits your foot, and how you're gonna run in it. Um again that's part of running shoe history it's it's you know it's one part innovation and a huge part um, marketing hype you know and that's that's the sad part about it but that's also um an inspiration too like i said i'm the one that says yeah happiness is a new pair of shoes and certainly it is and so it, it, it's kind of a you know a weird dichotomy of like understanding like okay there's this great shoe everyone wants and like okay that's not my shoe i mean like you, you got to find out what's what's best for you and so i think think the reviews help build hype And certainly if they're well-written, they can be informative and that's good. But I think in terms of, um, you know, like awards for shoes or, you know, shoe of the year, I think that's, that's kind of lost at this point. I think it's, it's, it's about finding specifically finding the, the shoe that's best for your individual feet.
1: Where do you see the industry going? In the last few years, we've seen a number of newer brands pop up. Some of them have, or are standing the test of time, Hoka being one of them. They got acquired by Deckers. They are- way more widely available now than they were when i started a competitor say in 2010 when they were just starting to come out Um, other brands like ultra have done well Um, we've seen others kind of fall by the wayside like newton where do you see and and others like nike adidas new balance Reeboks making a bit of a resurgence where do you see the industry going in the next few years
0: yeah it's a weird it's a weird kind of situation there's so many brands out there right now there's so many brands that have come and gone there's so many brands like you said that are booming, but also some that are just you know teetering you know and um, um it, certainly it's a business equation. I think a lot of brands have gotten into it over the years because they saw this growing number of of runners right and that's a big big bunch of dollar signs on a on a bottom line and that's that's, that's what that's what business is and that's you know it's just you know running shoes are a commodity, and people are producing these to sell more and more of these and um so when smaller brands get into it um hopefully they come in with something innovative i mean um the, some of the brands you mentioned uh the newtons the hokas um certainly when topo came in i mean uh on running i mean like everyone's got their own take on it um certainly that's part of it um i think if you if you're a small brand come into it with just another shoe then you're dead in the water to start with and that's why those brands don't last um, and, and, and two, the bigger brands are always trying to innovate and, and offer something new and different um, to be able to stay in those those perches. You know, I mean, um, you know, Nike, Adidas, uh, New Balance have made great shoes for years. Um, and then you know, certain brands have fallen off because they've 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 stopped stopped those uh, innovative designs and such. But um, where it's going, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, like um, I think one of the most compelling things that um, is going on right now is that athleisure shoes have really taken. Um, taken a lot out of the running market. I mean, I think I think running shoes for years starting in somewhere in the late 80s um became this this uh, comfort shoe of choice for Americans. Um and you can you can know that by going to an airport and walking around an airport, everyone's wearing running shoes, right? And most people either aren't runners or don't look like runners, and that's not to be um, you know, nasty or mean. It's just most people are wearing running shoes cuz they're comfortable, right? Um and that happened, you know, for for 30 years or so, and then all these other brands, all these athleisure brands came out and made comfortable shoes that looked good and more casual and everything else that looked good with jeans and shorts, whatever else that were, you know, not 120 or 130 bucks, they were 80 bucks. Right.
1: Well then people ask, why, why can't I run in those? They look just like the ones that cost three times as much. Right. Right. That's a good question. I
0: mean like, um, and to some extent, yeah, you, you can run in those. And like, that's the thing. I mean, like the running brands have, uh, certainly done a number by creating more technology, more, you know, cool, flashy things in them. But at the same time, I mean, if you came down to it and you were given a pair of, um, you know, the Proke heads I wore when I was five years old to a pair of super tricked out, you know, shoes with this kind of insert and carbon fiber plate and air insole. Yeah, you could still, we could go run five miles and like, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Certainly there are better types of cushioning maybe and more resilient types of cushioning, but that's a thing. But but the athleisure shoes is an interesting thing because people want to look athletic and active and they wear, you know, uh, a good brand is Allbirds. Allbirds came out of an internet success. They launched these casual shoes that look cool and looked, you know, both leisure and, and active and, and they've, they've blown up, right? I think they call them runners actually. I think so. Yeah. And that's the thing. And like, and that's the thing, like um, people, people want to, and that's, that's why running shoes first became this this, um, comfort shoe of choice, I think, because people wanted to identify as a runner or someone who was active or was someone who's fit without and, and doing the work, maybe without doing the work, um, you know, or, or maybe doing the work too. But, 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 but yeah, it was, it was a statement made about yourself and, um, and, and yet, you know, okay. So as we've seen, you know, running competitiveness, um, kind of tail off, certainly participation has been up until recently. Now it's leveling off. Um, and now people just want to look that way. I mean, I think that athleisure as a trend, um, is certainly going to be here to stay. And, you know, how will that take a bite out of uh, running shoe brands? Well, we've already seen a lot of running shoe brands try to create athleisure shoes that are kind of look better, have better aesthetics, and certainly maybe aren't made for running more than five miles. But, um, can they compete with the Uber trendy slash stylish shoes that are out there?
1: I'm not sure. I found what you said about smaller brands trying to break into the industry now being dead in the water, really interesting because the ones that are still around, they had to differentiate themselves in some way. We already mentioned Hoka. They came out with these oversized maximalist shoes and visually they are very striking. Same with Newton. They had lugs on the front of shoes. No one else had that on has these cloud shaped pods, which you look at them on the wall. You're like, Oh, that looks really different. You start asking questions and we could go on ultra with their zero drop. Um, you know, same stack height throughout the entire shoe. And it's been interesting to see how some of those smaller brands and, you know, whether it's a new technology or it's a new aesthetic, how that's influenced a lot of the bigger brands who come out and they copycat them, you know, whether it's coming out with the maximal shoes of their own or dropping, you know, the the heel toe ratio on on their own shoes to be maybe four instead of eight or 10 or 12 um, and so on and and so forth do you see, I don't know where I'm going with this as far as like a, a question goes, but do you see those, you know, those smaller brands really, you know, moving the industry more so than some of the bigger ones? I think to
0: some extent, because they bring a newness and excitement. And if they're marketed well, or they get a lot of buzz, then certainly they can do that. I think that the brands you just mentioned certainly have done that well, um, while also being truly different. I think that, you know, Ultra a good example. I mean, when uh, Golden and Brian started uh, Ultra, they they wanted they, they believed in this, this zero drop mentality, right? And um, most other brands kind of shunned it. And then you know certainly they became a thing. They be, became a growing brand. And by 2013 or so, you saw these other um, brands either doing zero drop shoes or um, low drops and everything else. And so I think that uh, certainly there is a lot of copycatting in the industry. Um, um, and that's that's true even even when like Nike put out the first Air, and so other brands were trying new things. I mean, there's other brands that tried to do. Um, aspects of that, we had A6 gel come out. There was a lot of other you know, types of things that were um, trying to change cushioning. Um, and to some extent, that's good. It, it forces other brands to innovate as well, whether it be with uh, maximalism or or just lighter weight uppers. I mean, like if you look at the whole trend of knit uppers, I mean, I think, I think actually uh, Sketchers was the first to put out a knit upper. And um, they figured out um, how to do it, how to do it first, but then other brands have come along and what we see at out of knit uppers, it le- led to a whole revolution of uppers being lighter, stronger, also differentiating between uh, support and stretch in different areas. And so, um, so to some extent, the innovation and the copycatting are good. Um, not everyone can innovate. Not everyone can innovate successfully, um, but certainly the combination of all those things often starting at the smaller brands, have moved things forward across the industry.
1: Well, we see it from the opposite end as well with the bigger brands. I mean... Before we came on, Mike, we were talking about the Nike Vaporfly. I mean, it's arguably the biggest is the biggest global footwear brand in the entire world. And they come out with, you know, this carbon fiber racing flat with a new lightweight foam, and it changes the game for marathoning. And, you know, here we are a little over a year later, and almost every brand has a response to that, something with a carbon fiber plate or some new foam or some combination of that. Um, fly knit uppers uh, or knit uppers um, have come into it. So it goes both ways. I think so. And I think the carbon fiber plate thing is interesting because that wasn't new either. There was
0: other brands sure. that used carbon back in uh, at least in the early 2000, several different brands. But
1: um, Trends coming back around.
0: Yeah. And, and, and or or being used in a better way. I mean, um, in combination with the, the Zoom X foam and like, you know, it's, sometimes it's a combination of things. And so when Nike brought it back out, obviously other brands were already working on it. Hoka was working on a carbon shoe, you know, three or four years before that. And now, you know, we know that um, you know, Brooks and Saucony have carbon shoes, uh, you know, so so there's, there's a a lot of things going on that, that have been, you know, um, around before, but also when success comes out, I mean, the 4% shoe is, is, been ridiculously successful there's no question i mean with the world record with all these victories of all major marathons i mean it's it's uh, pretty astounding to see um and no no different too than the adidas boost foam changed things too i mean everyone relied mostly on some form of eva generally for the last 30 years and then boost foam came out and, and revolutionized that and so you know it, maybe without um having the boost foam and a, and a foam war starting again after minimals and maybe nike wouldn't have said okay not only do we need a new foam which they found. They also needed something else, and that's when you know carbon fiber plates came into things. So, so, so yeah, it's it's um, again that's part of the excitement of things. You know, as long as you can straddle that line of understanding the hype and understanding what works and what doesn't work, and and certainly, you know, the Nike shoe proved itself, as many others did. Um, the carbon rocket from Hoka did as well, and 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 the carbon X seems to be doing well too. So. Um, again, the innovation might start from one aspect. Bigger brands certainly are known for taking things over and making it their own, but often making them better too.
1: We could go on geeking out about running shoes for hours, but I have a few other things I want to cover. Last bit on running shoes. I have your upcoming book in front of me, Kixology, the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes going to come out this fall. When did the idea for this book come to be and how long have you been working on it?
0: You know, it's funny because there's probably two different answers to that. I think officially it came to be um, in the fall of 2017 when I really started kind of focusing like, oh, there's got to be a book here and, and um, you know, and all these things that were kind of part of my, um, you know, reporting and stuff through the years. Um, you know, I kept, I, you know, knowing and being aware of all these original stories and, and uh, behind-the-scenes things. And so th- that's part of it. So really it came together. Um, I think the idea came together in December of 2017. Um, I think I officially pitched it and got a contract for it, you know, uh, a few months later and then I worked on it, you know, for the last year and change or whatever. Um, but really the bigger question, the bigger answer to that is that, um, as you know, with my, um, passion and interest in reporting about shoes with competitor, um, prior to that with running times, um, through various things, you know, again, back to my stories about trail running shoes, I think that it's one of those things It's it's somewhat of a, um, Kind Of a, a experience of life and my career, kind of thrown on the pages of, of, of this book because there's so many stories I tell in there about um, kind of how I've interacted with running shoes or with new brands and, and new shoes and everything else. It's really kind of that two part thing. It's, it came together in the last year and changed, but really it's been, it's been in my head maybe for a long time. Who's the target audience for it? That's interesting because uh, I, like you, have a lot of um, running shoe geek friends both in the industry or within the sport. And I, I, certainly, I think the, the, there's passages that, that those kind of people will like and enjoy and appreciate and go, oh, yeah. And there's plenty of those people quoted in the book, too. I think, though, it's, it's more for a little bit wider range of people, um, You know, certainly uh, people that are recreational runners, people that have, have, have been runners um, either for the last couple of years or all their life, um, no matter what level, um, in just the same way that someone might appreciate uh, a book about uh, baseball gloves, or um, you know, some kind of some some kind of cooking utensil. I, don't know. I, I think there's a, there's an interest from a general point of view. Um, certainly, the one thing that bonds us together as runners is certainly the act of running and the feelings we get from it. But also the fact that we also all wear shoes, you know, or most of us do, I guess. Um, and so I think that someone who um, might casually be training for their first um, or 10th uh, half marathon or someone who might, you know, like yourself has run, you know, very fast times in a lot of different events. Um, we'll appreciate, I think, um, again, the storytelling and the history and the lore
1: and the science of running shoes. What about the book do you think will surprise readers the most?
0: Um, that's interesting. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of um, hype, hyperbole out there about running shoes. Um, I think you know a couple things is that you know running shoes don't cause injuries, despite what you might think or like. Oh, that shoe hurt my foot. Um, it, it, running shoes don't cause injuries. It's certainly how you run. It's your gait. It's repetitive motion. Um, it's doing too much, too fast, too soon. Cause injuries. Um, Certainly, if you ran, you know, uh, 30 miles in a pair of of, of hiking boots or um, work boots, you might feel sore and broken down too. But that's that's not the point. Running shoes don't cause injuries. I think that's the biggest um, one of the biggest surprises or takeaways. I think certainly some of the storytelling behind um, how the Nike Four Percent shoe came together, um, how some of these brands emerged. Um, My original story with Micah True, who became Caballo Blanco and Born to Run was kind of fun because I knew him long before this whole thing kind of blew up. And that was kind of a cool thing. So there's there's a lot of, I think, fun and fascinating stories in there.
1: Back to your career as a journalist. You'd said earlier how... You are a writer with a wide variety of interests who's happened to write mostly about running over the last couple of decades, but you were the founding editor of Trail Runner magazine. You worked for many years as a senior editor at Running Times. You and I worked together at Competitor. After that, you did a stint as the content content director at Motive Running. Uh, You've been freelance for the last couple of years working on books, articles, various other projects. How has the running media landscape changed over the last 10 years or so?
0: That's a good point as well. I think that um, it, it's changed considerably, um, uh, especially in the last five years or seven years, um, uh, and maybe even back to 2007 when FlowTrack um, kind of was founded. I think certainly things become more visual, um, which has been good. I think you know certainly there's a lot more. Uh, access to to kind of seeing things um, come alive, which is good certainly certainly the the written word has changed uh, the spoken word obviously through podcast is 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 more prevalent now i think that um, which is good and bad i think I think that there's there's that immediacy of, of seeing a race result that has changed the interest in wanting to read about a race. You know, And I think that, you know, one of the things I did appreciate back in the day were um, not necessarily long form, but longer descriptions of races and how things played out. I think that um, that's probably missing, although we have seen some long form journalism come back, which is good. I think it's good for, for running and for understanding um, some of the stories behind people or, or events. Um, I think, I think the ability to be on your phone at any given time and see content um, and stories you want to see, whether you know you wanted to see them or not, is, is unique and interesting, certainly. Um, but certainly, obviously, it's become more modern. It's become more immediate. It's become more um, in your face. Um, and, and again, there's, there's plenty of positive aspects to that. But certainly, uh, certainly there's, there's probably is a loss of um, true storytelling that we've, we've left behind as we've ventured out of print magazines and newspapers. Is the print side of it dead? I don't think so, I think um I think that was an obvious thing to say um over the last you know five years, but I think there's um certainly good reason to believe that the uh, that print is still alive. I think that um that was driven by the industry, which was driven by marketing directors wanting to see analytics behind their ads and so if you're a marketing director at a big running brand, you wanted to see the success of your ads and in the dollars you're spending because uh, you wanted to be able to, you know, take it up a chain and say, "Hey, look, we're, we're we're investing in this digital stuff. We're selling more shoes here." That made a lot of sense. Um, e- even though, I mean, we know those numbers were all inflated and sideways anyway. If there was, you know, um, true analytics, it would maybe be a different thing. But I think that um, the, the the print side of things. I think that runners or anybody who's passionate about a certain subject matter love the tactile feel of a magazine or a book. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to sell my book. I'm just saying that people love to to take time with something and, and read it. I mean, I think that um, there are great stories and books that that, that that play out better because you're holding it and because you're experiencing it um, as opposed to just listening or driving your car and listening to it, you know, on your headphones or whatever else. And so, I think that um, you know, runners, um, you know, would love running magazines forever. I think that if you're into cats or cooking or you know whatever travel, you, you love that tactile feel, that visual um, connection um, that is different than what you get in video and audio and, and things like that. So I don't think print is dead. I think it's a tough business model because the act of printing paper and then shipping something through the mail or whatever it is, is very expensive. And I think the business model has to change in order for that to be viable. But we've already seen plenty of of, um, you know, small niche magazines, publications do really well with a new business model.
1: Is that where you think the biggest opportunity is not just for print, but maybe coverage of the sport of running versus the activity of it?
0: Um, I think so. I think that there's definitely an opportunity there. I also think on the other end though, I think there's, there's an opportunity to bring, um, probably more TV worthy or TV produced video, um, episode, webisode shows, Back, I mean, in, in, way back in the day, there was a show called Running and Racing that I used to like a lot on, you know, on, on cable TV, and that kind of went away because it didn't make sense or didn't have the viewership, it didn't have the sponsorship. But I think now that I think the, um, the beauty of the internet is that allowed um, us to more to, to watch more races, to see more things, because there was all of a sudden this channel for which you could go to. I remember people lamenting, you know, oh, I can't, you know, Pree's not on TV anymore. This is back around, you know, 2000 or whatever else, and like you couldn't see USATF meets on TV, right? Well, there was a lot of reasons for that, but one of which was, you know, they weren't, they weren't going to draw the ratings, right? And um, it also had to do with the sport not really kind of understanding itself. But I think the ability to, you know, watch uh, on live stream a lot of races and stuff like that has really kind of said, okay, there's a way to watch these events and everything else. Um, so I think there's a, there's a way to produce, again, more kind of video content that it's really um, polished and, and well produced. Um, and then I think also, I, I do think there's an opportunity in print.
1: Stepping back from that, it's been really interesting to see, and I'm part of this, the rise of niche media in running versus trying to be all things to all runners.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, we had a discussion um, a couple of years ago in Boston, and I think that's totally true. I think that, I think that it's really hard to... To feed the rat, so to speak, with content, um, I think that's what that's what big media has become. Because um, you're always looking at numbers, and everyone is so focused on SEO and and uh, did we get any clicks? And from from the, from that model point of view, yeah, it makes sense. You absolutely have to do that. And yeah, people are saying, oh, you got to change the wording around to have more you know frequent words in here. But what that's done is it's taken. It's taken the passion and the editing skill out of stories and content and, and just basically tried to homogenize everything, whether it's getting clicked on. Um, there's, there's stories that are popular um, that should get a lot of clicks. And there's stories that um, are, might be great stories that don't get clicks and therefore are pushed to the bottom of the pile. And relevance, unfortunately, in this modern media because, um, yeah, yes, yeah, a story about you know me running you know forty eight miles to Winter Park over these old railroad trestles might be fascinating, and cool, but not to that wide of an audience. And so, I think that, um, that that's a challenge. I mean, certain modern media has these dictating rules about what has to happen and how the numbers have to be, um, you know, as opposed to just starting with a good story for the sake of a good story.
1: Last bit here before we wrap up. Where do you see your involvement in coverage of running being moving forward?
0: That's a, that's an interesting question. And, um, without, without teasing too much, I think that I'll be heavily involved still, you know, in, in, in the coming year and coming years, I think this book has been a kind of a fun, um, uh, diversionary passion. It's really allowed me to sink into one thing and it's kind of put on hold a couple other things. Um, and, and also kind of get away from, the running media industry as it's been changing and going through a lot of changes and acquisitions and mergers and um, successes a little bit and failures. I think that um, again, getting back to my previous point, I, I don't want to be in a position to feed the rat so to speak and have to produce every single story um, out there uh, in running, which I think some other media brands are doing right now, not only in running, but in other sports. I mean, it works for ESPN to some extent because that's who they are. But um, when you're, um, when you're covering something, whatever it is, it's just not possible to produce that much content content is so expensive and it's just not possible to keep up because um the turn and burn on a story that um takes x number of dollars to produce um it's just a weird dynamic right now where you can't produce all that. but i have no interest in that i have no interest in what we're even doing at competitor which was trying to do that trying to be everything to all people i think that i think um to your point i think um, we both got fried on it completely fried and and i think i know i did yeah i mean like um and i think that i think that with um carefully curated um really thoughtful um content and commentary is a way to go um i think certainly uh the morning shakeout is a good example of that um and there's other other examples of that out there, I think that um certainly that's what my interest is, and so um some of the things i've been I've been kind of noodling over and kind of exploring and approaching um are are in that realm and so I have a great care um, for the sport of running I have a great care for recreational runners who are experiencing some of the things i've experienced um in running, and so i think there's a, there's a way to blend both i think there's there's um you know uh there's a a lot of stuff out there on the internet already i don't have any interest in reproducing any of that i think there's a way to do something that is very um smart careful thoughtful and and really kind of um you know just really highlights the the essence of what we all do this
1: well knowing you and having worked with you i'm excited to see what that ends up being and who knows maybe we'll work on it together i I would like that very much yeah all right well this is super fun brian thank you so much for coming on the morning shakeout podcast i think it's time for us to go to lunch
0: Thanks, Mario. It's been a huge thrill.
1: All right, we did it. Really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and being a part of this journey with me. Also, a big thank you to the Kaiser Permanente Napa Valley Marathon and Half Marathon, which takes place on March 1st, 2020. Run, sip, and savor as Napa Valley offers the ideal destination for a race can run down the Silverado Trail on scenic net downhill courses then celebrate your achievement at one of over 500 Valley wineries, excellent restaurants, local breweries, or even on a hot air balloon. Use the code ShakeOut10, that's ShakeOut and the number 10, to save 10 bucks on your registration before September 9th, 2019. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, please tell all your friends and followers about it on your preferred social media platform and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. That helps new listeners to discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. Big shout-out to my man John Summerford at BearsRecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, the editing, the music, all of it. That's all John, and he's a big part of my small team here at The Morning Shakeout. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to The Morning Shakeout Podcast. (coughs)